My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In today's episode, I discuss how international economic law was devised as the regulatory regime for global capitalism. But here we look at capitalism both as a political system and as an economic system. We spend some time discussing markets, the nature of markets, and how there is truly no such thing as a free market, in that all markets will have certain rules and regulations to guide their operations. From there, we go into the planning of economies, a notion of bounded rationality, and how this is essential to understanding the nature of international economic regulation. Now, following that, in the second half, and these will be in part C and D, I look at the relationship between legalism and capitalism. Here I focus very much on the work of Max Weber. Max Weber was a sociologist who himself explored that relationship and detailed how capitalism arose in Europe rather than elsewhere and how the legal system that had emerged in Europe at that time was itself conducive to the flourishing of capitalist relations. Last week, we considered the foundations of international economic law. And what I provided you with was some grounding in how we deal with the topic. Now, we are regulating relations, economic relations, between nation states. Now, that regulating relations between nation states necessarily triggers the international element to it, which is why I said to you, It is essential, it behooves you to study international law, the foundations of international law, to understand international economic law, regulating relations between nation states. So I often use this example. I say, imagine everyone sitting here is a nation state. And how you interact with one another, that in itself comes to give shape to international law. Whether it's at a bilateral level between two nation states, whether it's at the trilateral level, three, multilateral, regional, or universal, so global. In all of those instances, we are dealing with international law. Now then there's the economic side to it. And to understand the economic side to it, it's necessary for you to develop a bit of familiarity with political economy. And political economy is built around certain theories. I shared some of them with you the other day. But before we got into the theories, I started off with this idea, the doctrine of comparative advantage and the assumption. Now recall what the assumption was. The assumption is that prosperity is available to all. Everyone can get rich. Remember that idea then, the the old adage? Rising tides lift all boats. So we begin with that assumption, and that assumption leads us to the doctrine, or sometimes referred to as theory, of comparative advantage. The claim here is that all states, each and every one, gains when they pursue, in terms of economic activity, what they are most competent, capable of. So if you happen to be very good 
at growing bananas, then grow bananas. If you happen to be very good at making mobile phones, then make mobile phones. And then what you will do will be to trade with other nations for what you are incapable of producing. The theory, the doctrine of comparative advantage. Now that doctrine of comparative advantage and the claim that prosperity is possible for everyone then leads us into those theories in political economy and leads us primarily to one of the three. Remember, we looked at three of them. The first one, mercantilism, meaning the economic productivity within a given jurisdiction should be developed to maximize national prosperity, national interest. So it's very much us against the world. Liberalism comes at it from a different perspective. And liberalism says, and this is where that theory of comparative advantage comes in, liberalism tells us that what we should allow, what we should facilitate, is the pursuit of self-interest, both at the individual level, but also at the collective level. And that is going to enhance collective prosperity. So let us create open borders, free flow of goods, free flow of services, free flow of capital, not free flow of workers though, that is distinct. Let us create those free flows so as to uplift public welfare. Marxism comes in and tells us something different. Marxism comes in and says that in fact, to understand how societies are structured, to understand the economic relations that take place, we have to look at how the necessities are produced. It is by studying those modes of production, but not just studying the modes of production, studying how those modes of production evolve, change, develop. That is the way that we come to understand a little more about how society is structured and about political consciousness, why people think the way they do. Now, as I concluded last week, each one of those theories is on display at the minute within the UK and beyond. Not solely in relation to Brexit, but each one is on display in that we do operate with this nationalist ethos this nationalist mentality. We are driven by this putative collective known as the nation state. And yet at the same time, liberalism is what all our politicians are saying. We have to be more liberal, we have to be more open. Very few politicians, at least in Europe, are saying we must be more protectionist. We must close off our borders. Well, they do say we must close off our borders, but we must close off our borders to workers to immigrants, to people, but they do not say, let us close our borders to capital. They, knew to, they do not say, we need to stop the import of bananas into the country. So they want to maintain that openness. So we have mercantilism on display, we have liberalism on display, but then what did Theresa May say yesterday in her statement for 10 Downing Street? It is time 
to put aside self-interest. Amazing, no? She buried 200 years of Adam Smith. It is time to put aside self-interest. But according to, to Adam Smith, self-interest is what we should maximize, and that is the pathway towards collective prosperity. And she says, no, we need to unite, we need to come together as a collective to enhance national prosperity. We need to put aside self-interest. Some might even say that there's all of a sudden a Marxist tendency appearing in May, type of communitarianism, dare I say it, socialism. Do recall what she said. Remember in her maiden speech when she took over the leadership of the Conservative Party, which group, which demographic did she say she was most concerned with? The jams, the just about managing. She didn't say, to hell with the jams, what matters is self-interest. Margaret Thatcher, some of you might recall, said there is no such thing as society. There are men and women. Oh, and families. That was Margaret Thatcher. That was the beginning then of neoliberalism. What matters are women. What matters are men. And maybe your extended relations. But that idea of a society, bunk. Theresa May comes out and says, no, no, that's not true. We still are a collective, and there are these groups that are being disadvantaged by capitalism, suffering as a result. They're not enjoying the benefits. So that promise of collective prosperity, that promise of public welfare, is not being achieved. Wait a second. Margaret Thatcher, there's no such thing as society. Theresa May, people are being left behind. Now, this is not to say that Theresa May is somehow a champion of the people, not at all. As I said before, we call a spade a spade, we call a bigot a bigot, and Theresa May is a bigot. And that was a political type of political rhetoric that was being used to try to present a political party in a better light. But regardless, it was said, self-interest is not the pathway to collective prosperity. As I said, that buries 200 years of Adam Smith. So what we're seeing then is that at the same time that we have mercantilism on display, we have liberalism on display, and there are elements of Marxism on display also. Now many students, and I'll use this as a segue into today's topic on law and capitalism, many students will hear me say mercantilism and liberalism, Marxism, and they say, oh, this is too much theory. The module is too theoretically oriented. Now, normally my response would be tough. The field itself is theoretically oriented. There's no way to understand international economic law without understanding the theories underpinning it. But then I think of a lecture I gave yesterday to my postgraduate students, and I was explaining to them how to carry out research. And I said, when you are carrying out research, it is always essential that you specify what your methodology is word, methodology. That is simply the how. How am I going to study, to write, to investigate this topic? Methodology is the how. And what is essential is for you to consider the lens, how you are looking at it. What is the color of your lens? What does your lens highlight? What does it accentuate? And of course, 
what does it avoid? And I'll give you an example. In the United States, some years ago, a study was carried out. It was an important study looking at the issue of capital punishment. And the concern was that capital punishment was being used for two types of crimes, murder and rape. And we were looking at this and said, we want to see, is there some type of coherence and consistency in the way the sentences are being dispensed? Why coherence and consistency? Because that is the basis of positivism. We look to see that the legal system is coherent and consistent. So if you were punished for theft and you received five years and she was punished for theft of the same and received one year, people might say that seems inconsistent. If you can be punished for stealing a laptop but not punished for stealing a desktop, somebody might point out that the law is incoherent. So from a positivist perspective, we are interested in coherence and we are interested in consistency. So they look and say, are the sentences, capital punishment, you are being put to death, are those being dispensed coherently and consistently? And what they found was no, they are not. There was bias. And all of you know now, immediately goes to your mind, we say black people who were convicted would be sentenced, would be executed to a greater degree than white people. That's immediately what everyone is thinking. Why? Well, the United States is a racist country. They have a history of racism. And so it would be unsurprising for it to manifest in that way. But that wasn't what the study uncovered because the study wasn't looking at it in that way. The study was coming at it from what we refer to as a critical race perspective, but also a feminist perspective. So they did not simply look at the perpetrators of the crime, the accused, the convicted, because then that would be looking at the men. They were coming at it from a feminist perspective, so the focus ended up being on the victims, not the judges, because those are men, and not the lawyers, because those were men at the time as well. This was in the 60s. So the only way that you could critique this from a feminist perspective, if you wanted to see where the women were, was to look at the victims. And they looked at the victims and what did they find out? They found out that juries would convict and sentence to death perpetrators, not based on the color of the perpetrator, but based on the color of the victim. So if you were a white woman who had been raped, it didn't really matter the ethnicity of the person who raped you, you would be convicted and sentenced to death. But if you were a black woman who was raped, it didn't really matter the color of the perpetrator, they would only be incarcerated if they were. And so it was pointing to a disparity, not just in how they were treating the defendants, that's another study. This study, the lens, was a feminist lens. And so they were looking for gendered treatment within the law. And they say, let us consider gender treatment, and this is where they located it. But if they were using a class-based lens, would they have been looking solely at women? 
Well, they would probably be looking at something different because a class-based lens is not the same as a feminist lens. That is the point. When a law student says, this module is too theoretical, I am sorry to say you are speaking nonsense. And what I mean by that is not to mock you. I'm pointing out that all laws, the legal system, is theoretically based. All your studies are theoretically based. There is no way of studying the law without studying theory. It would be a little bit like studying the water without getting wet. I don't know how you do it. So with that in mind, let us proceed with today's session on the relationship between law and capitalism. There are going to be four parts to today's session. In the first one, I'll speak to you a little bit about markets. That won't take very long. In the second one, we will consider planning, how economies are planned and how laws participate in the structuring of the plans for an economy. In the third one, this is where we turn to Max Weber and the emergence of capitalism in Europe as distinct from the type of economic systems that were in operation in other parts of the world, which leads us to the fourth part, which is then what we term legalism and the relationship between legalism and capitalism. Now on the first part, international economic law. International economic law is the regulatory system for global capitalism. Hence why it is essential for us to study capitalism. Now what is capitalism? Capitalism is, on one hand, a political system. It is a political system because it ultimately dictates how resources are distributed. And the argument is that resources should be distributed through the operation of the market. But it is also an economic system. Now, I mentioned this in relation to the market, that's an economic component, but there is an objective underpinning capitalism. Is the objective to feed everyone? No. The objective within capitalism is accumulation. Now, I don't mean that in a positive or a negative way. Merely pointing out that what capitalism has as it is its guiding ethos, is accumulation. We are going to accumulate. So there's a question I like to ask. All of you have studied English. What is the definition of enough? It's a genuine question. The word enough in the English language, what is the definition? How do you define it? You're smirking, you're like, wait a second. What is the definition? Enough is, well, it's enough. It's when you have enough. Sufficient, okay. It's a sufficient amount. What is a sufficient amount within a capitalist system? Let's give you, let's take it out of the abstract. If I were to offer to pay you for whatever work you end up doing in a couple of years when you graduate, 100,000 pounds a year. Is that enough? Not enough. It should be more. How much more? No limits to the bank? Won't. So, pay me more. Okay, great. How about I offer you 200,000? No, keep going. When is it enough? Now, 
This is a key point about the transition from a subsistence-based economy, which would be an agrarian economy, to an accumulationist economy or a capitalist one. With a subsistence economy, what is enough? What? So when you have enough to meet your needs. So when you sit down to eat, how much do you eat? You, well, you eat until you're full. That is it. You've had enough. It's a sufficient amount. You have satisfied, satiated your hunger. You have satisfied your need. You have eaten a sufficient amount. That is within an agrarian subsistence-based economy. But when we shift to a surplus producing, an accumulationist economy, what is enough? 100,000? 200,000? A million? 10 million? 100 million? There is no answer. There is no answer and that is the nature and this is the major distinction between these two types of economies. Now, bear this in mind. This is essential in understanding the issue of distribution. What did I say to you before? I said capitalism is a political system and it dictates how distribution of resources should take place. And it says it should be through the operation of the market. Now consider an agrarian community. An agrarian community that grows crops, that produces crops, so we have a community. Agrarian communities vary in sizes, but if we look historically, the range would be anywhere between 150 and 200 people. You have this agrarian community. How do you dictate distribution? Going back to your answer before, well, based on need. Well, how many calories does a child need? How many calories does an adolescent need? How many calories does the el do the elderly require? Everything is based upon what the need is. But within an accumulationist economy, distribution doesn't happen via need. Distribution happens via the operation of the market. Which, of course, begs the question, what is a market? All of you have been to a shopping mall before. Some of you may have even gone to a farmer's market or to a German market during the holiday period. You've been to markets, so you know what markets are. Markets are places where people come to barter, to transact, to trade. So the easiest example, go up to a stand in a market and say, hey, may I have a sandwich, please? And they say, yes, what kind of sandwich? You tell them, they prepare the sandwich, and then they say to you, that will be five pounds. And then you say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. And their response is, why did you waste my time? You're not getting the sandwich unless you compensate. That's the nature of a barter. But imagine now you go to your parents' home, you ask one of your parents for a sandwich, they ask you what kind, you tell them they prepare it for you. I admit, I don't know your families. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, I have a sneaking suspicion they would not ask you for five pounds 
in exchange for the sandwich. I hope not. This is Britain after all. <laughs> because your parents' home, your home, the family, is not a market. Transactions take place within a family, but these are not market-based transactions. There is a different ethos at play. Now, all markets have boundaries. All markets have rules. And yet, the most common qualifier for markets today, whether reading in academic literature, leading in popular media, the most common qualifier is what? Free. The free market. All of you have heard this. Many of you even think in this way. Free market. But a market, as I said, is a noun. It is a place where people come to barter. Nothing more. Now, when I add this qualifier, free, I am now, as I said, qualifying what I mean by it. I am saying free, but free is a political term. And what I mean by free could be very different from what you mean by free. Now, free is a political term and is the basis upon which we tend to structure laws surrounding the market. Now, the argument is that markets should be as free as possible. We get this through liberalism. And liberalism, as I said to you before, is the basis upon which the capitalist economy is developed. It began with mercantilism, but it's become quite liberal in character. Now, what does free mean if we say there are laws, there is a market? The laws then are either treated, and this is an important distinction for you to bear in mind for the next part of the lecture, it means then the, the, we either have on one hand an intervention in the market or an interference. An intervention or an interference. Now, what do I mean by that? Markets look free. As I said, we qualify it, it's a political term, but markets look free. But markets look free largely because the regulations that we have normalized are invisible. There are regulations there, regulations that restrict the market, but they are invisible because they have been normalized. Consider this. Are there any restrictions on sales in a market? Can I go to Tesco and buy a little baggie of cocaine? I cannot. This is a restriction. Can I go to the Humanities Cafe and buy a bottle of vodka. So, the first part we say cocaine and we say, well, cocaine is illegal, so of course you couldn't go to a market and buy it. All right, fine. Vodka is legal. I go to the Humanities Cafe. The Humanities Cafe is frequented by a lot of you, by a lot of students. A whole bunch of you, you know, look like drunks to me. Chances are you would enjoy buying a bottle of vodka, maybe having a shot before coming to a lecture on international economic law. Take the edge off. And yet, you cannot. Are they choosing merely not to sell it? Well, in fact, no. They are prohibited from selling vodka at the Humanities Cafe. All right, let me ask you another question then. Can you buy a vote? Can I turn to a political party and say, I'm auctioning my votes? 
and I have a pool of people who are willing to agree for the right price we will sell our votes. What about a judgment? Can you buy a judgment? Pay the judge? Hey, can you rule in this way? There's a few of you who are nodding yes, which makes me think that we're doing a poor job at teaching you <laughs> at this law school. So, university seats? Ooh, right? How much are each of you paying to come here? Anyone ever heard of legacy places at some of the more prestigious institutions? What are legacy places? Right. So if you happen to be from a particular family, whether that family has or alumni or happen to be reputed in a certain way, then it allows you to bypass the process, the admissions process. Is that fair? Is that right? Is that just? Or is this merely the operation of the market? Now, what did we say before? Distribution through the operation of the market. We have regulations in place over the goods that we can sell. And we don't recognize those as regulations. We don't treat those as prohibitions because that has been very much normalized. You're not surprised that you cannot buy a bottle of vodka at the Humanities Cafe. You are not surprised that you cannot buy a bag of cocaine at Tesco. You accept this. You don't even think of it as a market-based restriction because those rules have been normalized. We can go even further. Location. I used to live in New Zealand. I worked at the University of Auckland. I was a lecturer there. I lived in a part of Auckland called Western Springs and you had, the law school was located in what they termed the CBD, the Central Business District, center of town. And I would ride my bicycle along, so I would go along from Western Springs to the city center. And along the way, what did I pass? Ready? Along the way, I would cycle by a brothel. It's a brothel. Everyone here knows what a brothel is, and you're surprised now to hear that there is a legal brothel in Auckland, and some of you are texting, you're looking and saying, hey, next trip, New Zealand. <laughs> Would that happen between Coventry and Warwick? No. Why? Because brothels are prohibited in the UK, but brothels are legal in New Zealand. Now, there was a proposal to open another brothel in Auckland, in Mount Eden. Mount Eden is an upper middle class, well-to-do residential neighborhood. And there were protests. Why? They didn't want, parents didn't want a brothel operating next to their children's school. And what did the city do? The city prohibited the corporation from opening a brothel in Mount Eden. But they did allow them to open it in Western Springs not as well to do. So here we have a location-based restriction, but also a goods-based restriction that varies from one jurisdiction to another. Labor conditions, minimum wage, maximum number of hours, overtime, vacation pay, sick pay, the list goes on and on. All of these are interventions in the market. Or, are they interferences? Now this depends primarily on whether you endorse the moral value 
underpinning the regulation. If you endorse the moral value underpinning it, then it is an intervention, not an interference. It is a regulation, not a restriction. It is neutral rather than negative if you endorse the moral value. What's known as the National Party, which would be the equivalent of the Conservatives here in New Zealand, Don Brash, the former leader of the party, I debated him some years ago when I was at Auckland and we had a debate on minimum wage and he was calling for minimum wage to be abolished and his argument was that this would stimulate employment, this would stimulate business activity, this would provide more jobs to young people. What was his argument? His argument was, let us eliminate this interference in the market. Let us eliminate this restriction. I want to promote the free market, is what Brash would say. So the conflict then within the market, and this brings us then to the end of the first part, the conflict within the market is the conflict over the boundaries. How should that market be bounded? Do we accept the rights that are being defended by a regulation or do we reject them? Should markets be open on Sundays, 24 hours? Should goods be available anywhere? Brothel. Should we allow the renting of flesh? And if so, should we allow the establishment where this is taking place to be based next to a school? Or, if you think about it, next to a university, a lot of willing clients close by. That is where the conflict takes place, around the boundaries. Mm -hmm.